I'm going to talk this morning about uh, Melchizedek. The, uh, the Torah portion this week covered Melchizedek. Uh, I know that it was discussed uh, in the Torah study this morning. Um, Gary read for us from the Torah portion the story of Melchizedek. And, uh, and so I'm going to, I'm sure I'll overlap some with what was discussed in the Torah study today. Uh, but for those of you who did not attend Torah study, uh, some of this might be new, uh, some not. But I think it's really important that we all have a baseline about Melchizedek. This is a really important story in Scripture, the story of Melchizedek is. And it's somewhat of an unusual story because the story of Melchizedek does not have a continuous thread throughout Scripture. The story of Melchizedek appears, sort of just kind of gets dropped in our laps here in Genesis 14. And then you don't hear anything about it again in the whole Torah until you get to the writings, you get to Psalms, and it appears again very briefly and then disappears. And we don't hear about it until we get to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, and where it really has a glorious ending, so to speak. Uh, Melchizedek does, at least kind of wraps it up a little bit. So we're really going to cover the context today of where Melchizedek's appearing. Um, including Abram's life. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at that interaction between Abram and Melchizedek and then investigate, talk a little bit more about who Melchizedek is. So in the context of, of this chapter, chapter 14 of Genesis, if you want to open up your Bibles there, um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but the context of Genesis 14 is that there are several rulers listed in this chapter. They all have some form of dominion over different areas in the region around present-day Israel. And so if we were to go back and consider the story of the Tower of Babel, okay, that's a story of dispersion. The Tower of Babel is a story of dispersion. It's, what we're seeing then here is very real consequences of the Tower of Babel. Okay? This is a very real consequence of that dispersion. Okay? They were dispersed. They were speaking different languages. They now had different motives and different goals. And these were vying powers now. Okay? They, were, they were there, some serving other more powerful kings. So you had lesser kings and greater kings. You had times when one group would rebel against another group. And, and one ruling kingdom would fight against another ruling kingdom one, in an effort to become independent one from another. So what you see here is that there's this really complex system of people groups and rulers and battles for possessions and trade routes and resources. This is not some empty land, okay? This is not some empty land that just happens to have Abraham in one area and Lot in another area and this down in the valley. No, it's not like that. There's a lot of people here in this area. And it's a very tribal political dynamic going on here. And there are battles going on here. There are battles due to prideful power plays and rebellious revolts that are going against one another. And so there's this scene happening here. And, and, and within all of this rebellion, Scripture actually uses multiple words to describe the idea of rebellion. And there are a couple of these words that Scripture uses in Hebrew to describe rebellion are the words marad, you guys can say marad, and 
sarar, okay? These are two verbs that scripture, the Hebrew scripture used to describe rebellion. So um, the word marad in, is describing that bold, that audacious, audacious, that attacking, that in-your-face rebellion, okay? You guys kind of picture that? That's your marad rebellion. It's bold. It's in your face. It's attacking. It's intentional rebellion. And then there's sarar. This is your stubborn, your backsliding rebellion, um, your subtle rebellion, your passive rebellion. That's sarar. You kind of see what I mean? There's two different types there. These words are used in over 40 instances interchangeably at times in the Tanakh when it's describing the condition of the people of Israel. It kind of goes back and forth using Sarar and Marad. And uh, I'm certain, you know, if we were to think about times in our lives, about ourselves, or perhaps our children, if we have children, where they've either acted in that bold rebellion, that in-your-face rebellion, or that passive, kind of under-the-table rebellion, so to speak. You guys probably can think about times in your lives, examples when that's happened. Um, I recall as a, uh, as a young teenager seeing one of my siblings act in that bold, maraud rebellion. It did not go well for them. So I learned from that 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 was not a good idea. And I chose my own path of Sarar, under-the-table rebellion, okay? Because I knew that the bold did not get re- yield good results. Now, <laughs> on the surface, this has the appearance on the surface of being better. It's not, okay? It's not. It's actually really insidious because uh, it's covert rebellion. Um, there's... The rebellious spirit is still there, and that's what matters. Um, in some ways, the marad is all, almost better because you can deal with it then and there. It's obvious. Sometimes we have trouble seeing or pinpointing that sarar rebellion, that under-the-table covert rebellion. I was reading in Isaiah 30 this week, as I've been reading with Cohen in our daily Bible reading, and uh, in this chapter... Um, Something sounds different. There we go. In Isaiah 30, it says, uh, Oi, the rebellious children, it's a declaration of Adonai, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my rock, so that they may add sin to sin, who go down to Egypt, but did not consult me, to take refuge in Pharaoh's stronghold, to see to seek shelter in Egypt's shadow. Therefore, Pharaoh's stronghold will become your shame, and the shelter in Egypt's shadow will become your disgrace. For though their princes are his own and their ambassadors reach Hanes, they will all be ashamed of a people who cannot profit them. They are neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. So I was reading that, and I was thinking like about the book of Isaiah, how the narratives, one of the narratives of the book of Isaiah is warning Israel not to rebel against the Lord by trusting in other sources of power, namely Egypt, 
right? That's one of the themes of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Israel's feeling weak. They're feeling vulnerable. They want, they want to feel have some reinforcements. They're looking for reinforcements through Egypt. And uh, this is a Sarar form of rebellion, okay? This is not overt. This is like this stubborn rebellion, this passive rebellion. We're just going to kind of hold on. We're going to try and hold on to the vestiges of, the, of this, you know, we, Israel, we're the, we have this God-ordained land and this God-ordained lifestyle, and, and we're going to reach for a power, though, that's not of God to retain it. That's what they were trying to do, to reach for a power that was not of God to, to, to maintain that life that they had. And it struck me this week as I was reading that, I was considering the rebellion in Genesis 14 and the rebellion in Isaiah 30 and how similar it is for us here in modern America when we stubbornly try to hold on to the vestiges of what seems like a God-ordained lifestyle by reaching for power through channels that are not of God. We do these through politics all the time. This has really been a dominant part of the last few election cycles. For those of us in the body of Messiah, it's a sarar form of rebellion to try to achieve spiritual ends through political means. That is a sarar rebellion. That's a subtle rebellion against the Lord. It's a stubborn, it's a lazy behavior. When we pursue what looks like that easier path, rather than pursue the more difficult path, the much slower path of kingdom expansion, of God's kingdom through God-ordained relationships, through God-ordained justice, and through reconciliation, one, to, one person to another, one family to another family. So to me, that's a lesson to be learned for sure when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. That's a sarar form of rebellion in Isaiah. That's one thing. Then we have examples of marad rebellion, audacious, in-your-face Active rebellion in Israel. We have these all over the place. One of them is in uh, Jeremiah 10. Um, I had read over this in preparation for youth group a, a while back. And um, in Jeremiah 10, um, it, it says uh, in verse 1, it says, Hear the word that Adonai speaks to you, house of Israel. Thus says Adonai, Do not learn the way of the nations or be frightened by signs of the heavens though the nations are terrified by them. The customs of the peoples are useless. It is just a tree cut from the forest, the work of hands of a craftsman with a chisel. They decorate it with silver and gold and fasten it with hammer and nails so it won't totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber garden, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm nor do any good. So as a side note, if you're paying attention to that, this passage is not about Christmas trees, okay? <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right now. It is not about Christmas trees. The Holy Spirit was not telling about Christmas trees. He was talking about idols, okay? About carved and decorated idols. The people of Israel were in audacious, in-your-face rebellion, maraud rebellion, by creating idols and worshiping them by, by cutting down a tree, by carving it, by decorating it with silver and gold, and then bowing down to it. This is, this is the same as the golden calf, okay? This is in-your-face maraud rebellion, okay? This is, and so 
Human hearts, they've been in rebellion like this for a long time. It's been since Adam and Eve sinned that human hearts have been in rebellion like this. And this is, this is a climate of rebellion that was happening in Genesis 14. Abram and Lot are living in this clim- climate of rebellion. Lot is settled there in the, near the city of Sodom in the valley. Okay? This is a really rich valley full of beautiful farmland. Any of us would want to live there. It's fertile. It's wonderful. But yet the climate is still of rebellion down there. As far as we know, Lot's not necessarily beholden to any one of these kings, one of these rulers, but he ends up getting caught up in it. He gets caught up in it because he's near there. We see in one of the skirmishes in in Genesis 14 that the winning group of kings happens to capture the people that lived in the land around the city of Sodom, including Abram's nephew Lot and his family. Thankfully, they took him alive, right? They didn't just slaughter him. They took him alive. And uh, somebody happens to escape, somebody who knows Abram, and says, hey, hey, Abram, hey, your, uh, your nephew Lot, your family's just been taken captive. And so when Abram hears that, he decides that it's his responsibility to redeem someone who was not exactly doing him any favors, Okay. You remember the story of how Abraham and Lot split up? Yeah, you do. What happened? They, Lot chose the best land for himself, right? He chose the valley, the fertile valley. The foot, if you've been to Israel, you know that the, the, the hills where Abraham lived were pretty arid. They're not the greatest for farmland. Probably okay for pasture, but even the valley is still better than that. Lot chose the best land for himself. And so, I want you to think about the audience here, though, um, that, that, is, that this story is being told to, right? Genesis is what? It's a historical narrative, right? It's a historical narrative that Moses is writing to the people of Israel. Okay? Moses is writing all this down. They, they actually probably know this story. They, probably, they already knew the ending, in fact, to the story of Lot that Moses is writing down. They were aware of the mess that, his, that Lot's offspring would bring. So when the story is being written down or being told in their oral traditions, they probably were questioning Abram's decision. Like, why would you do this, Abraham? Why would you go after to save your nephew? This guy's not going to do you any good. I don't want you to do this. But yet we know the end of the story. He does it anyway, right? Abram does it because it's the righteous thing to do. He goes after somebody who he doesn't have to go after to rescue them, even though he doesn't have to, but he's willing to, to do that. He's willing to potentially risk everything. We don't know, he didn't know what was going to happen there. After all, I mean, you had five kings battling against four kings, and then there's Abraham. What's going to happen? What's the likelihood of what's going to happen? Well, I think what we realize out of this is either one, just how powerful Abraham actually was, or two, and probably more likely, how powerfully God acts through Abram and his men. I would say that's what happened. How powerfully God acted through Abram and his men. They accomplished, like I said, what five kings and their armies could not do against a more powerful group of four kings and their, their armies. They did that. Abraham acted righteously in this by allowing God to use him. He pursued and defeated those armies. 
that had done a major injustice. You know, he probably could have been justified to let Lot remain captured. He could probably justify that in his heart, in his mind. But he's not willing to do that. This is, and to me, when I read that, I thought, well, that's a change in Abraham's character. That's a change in his character because up to this point, Abraham, is, Abraham has not exactly been an entirely solid dude. Okay? He went down to Egypt, right? And he said, oh, this is my sister, not my wife. And he wasn't even willing to protect his own wife. He wasn't even to risk himself for his own wife. To put himself, he put distance between himself and the risk. Okay? He put distance between himself and the risk. And, and he, this time he didn't. This time he actually, there, there was distance between himself and risk this time. And he closed it. And he put himself in the midst of that risk to do something that was righteous. And I, and I don't think it was a coincidence that this happened. I think that what we would see here is evidence of God starting to change Abram's character here. Okay? This is not the end all of Abram's character. He's not done perfecting them. He's going to make several more significant mistakes. Okay? So I'm not going to tell you that this is just Abram redeemed right here. He's not. Um, but it's a step in the right direction for him. It's an important step. And furthermore, God knew that this would be where he introduces Abram and he introduces Israel and us to the person Melchizedek. He's using this as an opportunity here. So in Genesis 14, I'm going to read this if you go there. In, in verse 17, and this will cover again what Gary read in the uh, Torah portion. Now after he returned, this is Abram, after he returned from defeating Kedor Lomer, I'm sure I butchered that name. How does it actually sound, Zach? <laughs> there you go. I'm not even going to try it again. <laughs> after he returned from defeating them and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of El Elyon. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who gave over your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, the possessions, take for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in oath to Adonai El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, not a thread or even a strap of all that is yours I, I take, so, so that you will not say that I've made Abram rich. I claim nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Honor, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So that's where we meet Melchizedek. Now before we get to discussing Melchizedek himself, let's think about some of the other narratives that we read about there. Specifically, there's this discussion of gifts and uh, making oneself rich. And this is another area where I think that, that uh, Abram has possibly started to mature some. We recall that in his previous, previous encounter with Pharaoh, he, where he distanced himself from personal risk, he 
accepted much personal gain from Pharaoh in that situation, kind of made him rich. That's in Genesis 12, 16, if you want to look that up. Um, And now, Abram is unwilling to entertain the idea of being made rich at someone else's expense. Now, I know in the Torah study this morning, there was some discussion about perhaps this had to do with Abram's understanding of who Pharaoh was and Pharaoh's character and who this king of Sodom was and his maybe potential nefarious character, how he wouldn't want to, he was dealing with two different people. We, you know, we don't know that, but perhaps also it's, this is a maturation of Abraham a little bit, of Abram, where he's, he's, he's not willing to accept that. Now, but in this case, you could probably argue that Abraham actually did the hard work. He earned this. If he wanted to keep it, he could. He, he's the one who went after this army. He captured it back. The king of Sodom, he couldn't defend it at all. And he's saying, give it to me back. He really didn't have any right to ask for it back. But he did. And Abraham wasn't going to be indebted to him. He said, it's yours. It's yours, king of Sodom. I don't want it. And more importantly, though, he doesn't want to claim credit. Abraham doesn't want to claim credit for the glory that belongs to God alone. You notice what he says there. He, he says that I raise my hand in oath to whom? To Adonai, El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. I praise God because he brought this all back. I don't need it. I'm praising God for this and this alone. Now, I think about our own, my own life, you know, where maybe I have a situation where I've put forth great personal effort, like Abram did here. I've, maybe I've taken on great personal risk. Maybe I've come out successful in that. In those times of achievement, do I take credit for myself? Or do I give glory to God in those times of achievement? Those times of success? Or, you know, with regard to my previous comments about uh, Abram becoming rich at someone else's expenses, how often do we do that? How often do we take those opportunities to have personal gain at someone else's expense? Hopefully, those are very few in our lives. But I can think of times both literally and figuratively when we do this. I was trying to think, well, when do I do this in my life? When do I make myself rich at someone else's expense? And, and, I, and I thought about um, some passages in Torah that talk about how we do not hold, withhold wages from a worker. Um, is, is something. And now, I can't think of a time specifically when like, someone has done a job for me when, I, when I've withheld wages, but I do know that when we purchase something where a worker that's prepared it was not paid a fair wage or was perhaps put into a dangerous situation to obtain it or to create it, then that can be making ourselves rich at someone else's expense. And this often happens unknowingly on our part. You know, when we purchase clothing or a smartphone or electronic device or even food that has been sourced in some corrupt area of the world where the labor that was used for obtaining that is slave labor or sweatshop labor. And our purchase then of that item gives us something much more valuable than what we paid for it. Now we can argue that, well, you know, I paid what the asking price was. I didn't cheat them. They, that's what it was asked for. It, But that's true, 
But it's also true that if the true value of it was paid fairly, the price would have been much higher as well. That's, that's the other side of the coin. Now, of course, this was not the situation that Abraham was in, right? He probably could have claimed, again, that he earned what he took, just as sometimes we can, but we, like him, we have to maintain that higher level of integrity in our lives. We have to do that, maintain that higher, higher level of integrity. So that's some of the, I guess, little commentary on some of the side stories that are going on here. But let's talk a little bit about Melchizedek himself. I want to kind of transition over, make a pivot to Melchizedek himself. And again, to keep the context in mind here, Moses is writing down history. Moses is writing down history for the Israelites during the time of the Exodus. The Israelites, have already, they already know who, what priests are, right? They've been in Egypt. They've seen the priests of the false gods in Egypt. So they're familiar with the concept of a priest, right? They are familiar now with the Levitical system because they have seen God set up the Levitical priesthood there as they're in the desert. They've seen it. It's set up now. So they know what these priests are. And, uh, and this is not foreign to them. So even if this is the very first time that a priest of God is mentioned in chron- the chronological history from the time of creation. This is the first time one is introduced in, in time. Um, this is not foreign to the audience who's listening to this. And, but what it says here is that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, and he blessed Abram. And again, this is not new, because they're familiar with priestly blessings being given over them, the people are. But this is the first instance recorded in Scripture of a priestly blessing. This is the first one. And after that blessing, we see that Abraham kind of quotes a part of that blessing. So if you look at the two blessings, you look at the blessing that, that uh, Melchizedek gave to said over Abram, and then you look at Abram's response to the king of Sodom, they're actually pretty similar. Abram kind of borrows some of the, the verbiage, some of the language. When he responds to the king of Sodom, and he says, in an oath to him, he says, Adonai El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. These are the exact words that Melchizedek spoke over Abram. But this Melchizedek character, he kind of, as I said, he kind of comes out of nowhere. What are we to make of Melchizedek when he shows up on the scene here? I mean, is, is it random that he shows up here? Because he's not, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have any appearance before this, and he doesn't have any appearance after this. It just seems like, sort of like this blip in the scripture up to this point. It seems just a little bit like that. Now, uh, Zach mentioned this in Torah study this morning. The traditional Jewish understanding of Melchizedek says that he's actually Shem. He's actually Shem, the son of Noah. Now, this, of course, this is not recorded in the Bible, okay? The scripture doesn't say anything about that. This is part of the Targum, the Targumim, the Aramaic interpretative, interpretive uh, translations, the traditions of, of Judaism. Um, and if you, if you look into that and you say, well, um, ask the question, like, why was the priesthood, you know, if, if this is true and he's Shem and he's a priest and, and he's the priest of God, why was the priesthood passed on from him to the Levites? And they, and they say, well, it's because if you look at the blessing, he blessed Abram before God. And so thus, 
the blessing of the priesthood went to Abram's offspring. That's what, that's what the traditional Judaism would explain. That's what the, it says that in the Talmud. Now, I'm not really buying that explanation because the Holy Spirit tells us a lot more about Melchizedek in Psalms and then in the book of Hebrews, okay? And that's important because, and again, because this is not just a random insertion here, okay? There's times in a story when we don't really understand why it tells us a part of the story when it tells it to us, because it doesn't really make sense. It's like it's inserted well before its time, and it doesn't really make sense. There's no context around it. And then you get to a much later part of the story, and it explains why then. And an author writing the story like that can do that because they have the whole story arc in mind, right? The author is the Holy Spirit. He can do this because he has the whole story arc in mind, and he knows what he's going to say in Hebrews when he says it right here. That's important to understand. It's the same reason why uh, a few months ago I preached on, the story, on Tamar, okay? And I said, What's the, where is this story of Tamar and Judah coming from? It doesn't make any sense until you realize that that's an important inclusion in the storyline of Yeshua, and only the Holy Spirit can coordinate that. Because if you take out Tamar in the storyline of Yeshua, there's no reason to include the story of Tamar right there. And there's no reason to include Melchizedek right here if you don't have Hebrews to explain more about that and how, how this would come about. So it's really important. I think it's not random at all. Not at all random that, that, this, uh, that this story of Melchizedek is included right here. I also believe that this character of Melchizedek is one of those that's not entirely meant to be clear-cut. It's not, it's not meant to. He's part of the mystery of Messiah that's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. We don't have to have it entirely explained. There can be mystery about this. Now, we should do our best to understand we should do our best to interpret. We shouldn't just be lazy and not try to interpret and not try to understand. We should do our best. When interpreting the scripture, we first look at the plain meaning of the text. That's the first and best way. And then we let the next thing we do, if we don't fully grasp it in the plain meaning of the text, is that we use scripture to interpret scripture. We go to another part of scripture to help us explain this. In this case, there's no context here in Genesis, of course, to explain this person. As I said, though, Scripture interprets itself both in, both in Psalms and in Hebrews. So if we go to Psalms, let's go to read Psalm 110 together. Let's all go there and, and look at that. Psalm 110. Not one, not chapter one, but 110. It's only seven verses. It says, a psalm of David. Adonai declares my, to my Lord, sit at my, right, at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. <clears throat> Adonai will extend your mighty rod from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will be a freewill offering in a day of your power. In holy splendors from dawn's womb, yours is the dew of your youth. Adonai has sworn and will not his mind not change his mind. You are a Kohen forever according to the order of Melchizedek. My Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. 
He, is, he will judge among the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush heads over the entire land. He will drink from a stream along the way, so his head will be exalted. So we see Melchizedek mentioned there, you are a priest forever, a Cohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, this is a messianic prophecy. Okay, that's how we would classify Psalm 110, is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah. Now, if we go to Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> so let's go all the way towards the end of your scriptures there. Hebrews chapter 7. Starting in verse 1 there. It says, For this Melchizedek was a king of Salem. Actually, we should start at verse 20 of chapter 6. Yeshua has entered there. That is the holy place has entered there as a foreigner on your behalf, having become Kohen Gadol, the high priest, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Yeshua, the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, quoting again Psalm 110 right there. For this Melchizedek was king of Salem, Kohen or priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, having returned from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, by the translation of his name, he is king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, which is the king of Shalom, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like Ben Elohim, the son of God. He remains a Kohen, a priest for all time. Now see how great this man is? Even Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth out of the plunder. Indeed, those sons of Levi who received the priesthood have, according to Torah, a command to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their kin, although they have come out of the loins of Abraham. But this one, who did not have their genealogy, has collected tithes from Abraham and has blessed him, the one holding the promises. Now it is beyond dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, dying men receive tithes, but in the other, one about whom it is testified that lives on. Through Abraham, even Levi, the one receiving tithes, has paid the tithes, so to speak, for he was still in his father's loins when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was based through the Levitical priesthood, for based on it, the people had been given the Torah, what further need was there for a different Kohen, a different priest, to arise, than designated according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron? For whenever the priesthood is altered, out of necessity and alteration of laws, it takes place, for the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, from which there is no, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord has sprung forth from Judah. Concerning this tribe, Moses said nothing about Kohanim, nothing about priests. And even in more evident, if another Kohen, another priest, arises like Melchizedek, one made not by the virtue of a Torah requirement or a physical descent, but by virtue of the power of an indestructible life, for it is testified, you are a Kohen forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former requirement is set aside because of his weakness and ineffectiveness, for Torah made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Amen. Amen. So, we read Psalm 110. We've read, we've read Genesis, of course, chapter 14. We've read Psalm 110. We've read Hebrews chapter 7. These are all of the mentions of Melchizedek. So we have a little bit clearer view of the end game here that Melchizedek was a part of. And 
what I believe, what I will submit to you, is that God, through Melchizedek, was preparing the Jewish people and us today for the ultimate priest of God, for Yeshua, by introducing Melchizedek before he ever introduced the Levitical priests. He was, he was preparing them for the ultimate priest, Yeshua. Because Yeshua exists outside of that temporary Levitical priesthood. I've often said, and I will, I will continue to say this, I believe that the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews was really preparing the Jewish people for the destruction of the temple when he wrote that. He was helping them realize that the temple was a shadow whose reality is in Messiah. And in painting the picture, and he reached back to the person of Melchizedek to show that even the Levitical priesthood that was held so sacred by the Jewish people and that by those who controlled the temple, that the priesthood was not just temporary, but it was a shadow of the Melchizedek priesthood, the ultimate priesthood that would be resumed by Yeshua. And that it was okay that the temple went away. It was not going to be the end of the world when the temple was destroyed. I believe that that's the case. Now, there's another aspect of Melchizedek I want to touch on this morning. It's mentioned here, and in most of our stories, Torah studies, I'm sorry, not stories, but Torah studies covering Melchizedek, that Melchizedek will submit that, we will submit that Melchizedek is an appearance of Yeshua, of the Messiah, in human form, prior to and outside the presence of Yeshua on earth, like in his form in the Gospels. Okay? It's that Melchizedek is God come in the flesh. That's what we would submit there. It's often talked about in Torah studies. I think we mentioned it a little bit this morning. I wasn't there the whole time. Theologians call these events Christophanies. Okay? So if you want to be, if you want to messianize that, that's messiophanies, right? <laughs> Sounds like a good name for a band. Christophanies, though. And there are multiple examples we could point to in Scripture of Christophanies, okay? We could think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There's a fourth person in the furnace there. We could think of the angel of the Lord addressing Hagar later, just a few chapters from now in Genesis. These are examples where we would say that God the Father is making himself known through the Son by the Spirit. This is a Christophany. God making himself known through the Son by the Spirit. Okay? This is a, a pre-incarnate Messiah, so to speak. Pre-incarnate. If we consider the incarnate Messiah to be Yeshua on the earth in the first century, that's the incarnate Messiah. The pre-incarnate Messiah would be all these examples of Christophanies happening prior to that, okay? Others might say, well, no, 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 no. This Melchizedek is telling us things. They're pointing us towards the Messiah. He, you know, Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7, they're poetic in what they're giving to us, but they're not, he wasn't actually a pre-incarnate Messiah. Other people will legitimately argue for that position. And Okay, so we might not be like 100% certain this is Christophany. Like maybe it's like 99% certain this is Christophany. A what? A Christophany? Uh, a Christophany is, a, is Yeshua, the Messiah, appearing 
in physical form prior to him coming as a birth through the Virgin Mary in that time. So any, any time in the Tanakh when we might believe that this person appearing in the Scripture is, is God in the flesh, we would call that a Christophany. Or if you want to call it a Messiophany, you can do that too. I'll let you do that here. <laughs> um, even if we're not certain, though, if it's a Christophany or not, I believe that this has a really, really, really awesome, wonderful effect of really drawing us deep into the text. It's like, ah, oh, it's got to pull, pull me in. I've got to learn more about this, right? And I love stuff like that. So even if we don't agree that if it's a Christophany, I bet you would agree that it's at least a type of Messiah, at a minimum, at a very, very minimum, we can agree that, that Melchizedek is a type of Messiah. Um, we see other types of Messiah. In, even in Genesis, we see like the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is a classic example of a type of Messiah. Uh, Melchizedek is a priestly type of Messiah. He's a king of righteousness. He brings out bread and wine. He blesses um, Really, the only person that other, other person that's true of is Yeshua, and so Melchizedek is a type of that. Um, and, and Hebrews says that at least the same, in that sense, Yeshua is a true and better Melchizedek. That's what Hebrews says there in chapter 7. We read that. He's a true and better Melchizedek. And so when we think about types of Messiah, like Joseph and, and things like that, I find them a little bit less mysterious. Actually, not little bit, a lot less mysterious than I find guys like Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek is really mysterious to me. Um, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, though, through this story, through Psalm 110, through Hebrews 7, I, I feel like it maintains that mystery around Melchizedek. It doesn't, it doesn't really give us a whole lot of other information. And I would submit to you that that's not just okay, it's really beautiful. It, it maintains a level of mystery. We need to have a certain level of mystery present in order to magnify beauty in our lives. There needs to be a certain level of mystery present. Uh, you probably heard phrases like, well, you know, they didn't leave left much to, much to be imagined there. Um, usually we use that phrase uh, in less, des less than desirable context, often when referring to someone whose their clothing or lack thereof um, Sometimes you need mystery, right, in your life. <laughs> you need mystery, and mystery is okay. In this case, I think mystery is really good. Uh, you know, when used in the, in the context of art or in the context of literature, there is a beauty to the mysterious and what's left to your imagination. And God is a God of beauty, right? God is a God of beauty. Things that are created, I mean, he created Look at what he created, the beauty of creation. If you just look at that, we have powers of observation. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 1, and it testifies on his behalf, right? That he is a God of beauty. He loves the creative. He formed our own imaginative processes. And God's own mystery and beauty is magnified when it points the way to himself, but it doesn't give every single excruciating detail. It's okay that it doesn't. It's okay that there's mystery. The beauty of the angel of the Lord appearing to Hagar, 
There is splendor in that. There is beauty in that. There is splendor in the mystery of the fourth person in the furnace. You don't have to know exactly all the details of where did that person come from and what's the history behind that person and where did they go? They, you know, they didn't walk out of the furnace or where did they go? You know, it's a, there's mystery to that and that's okay. All of these events, they don't devalue the incarnation of Messiah Yeshua, but they heighten our awareness. They heighten our anticipation that Yeshua is coming in the flesh. I mean, think about this, okay? Um, think about how many times you read a book or maybe you watched a movie, right? And uh, there's small clues dropped along the way, right, about what's coming in the end, the big finale. And, and so sometimes you don't pick up on those the first time. Then you go and watch it again, and you go and read it again, and you're like, oh, 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 I see what they did there now, right? And I, see, I saw that clue now, and, uh, and, I, and I picked it up, and, and I see, oh, man, that really, really foreshadowed the end now. I, I get that now. Um, it... it it's all coming together, and it's just giving me this greater anticipation, right? Some of these examples I mentioned, like the uh, angel of the Lord, Hagar, the fourth person in the furnace, um, we understand that those are more than just normal people. They ratchet up that tension, though, for us. They ratchet up that anticipation in this story, because those people point us to the Messiah, and that's a really good thing when they ratchet that up for us and they get us excited, they get us anticipated. And so, thinking about Melchizedek here, right? What are the things about Melchizedek that point us to the Messiah, that point us to Yeshua? Well, the big hint, one big hint is in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that God is the one that blesses. God's the one that blesses. In Genesis 12, at the beginning, he's talking to Abram. He says, My heart's desire is to make you a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great, so that you may be a blessing. My desire is to bless you, to, or to bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I will curse, and in, all the, all, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, I guess it's possible, yes, that... Uh, Melchizedek is just a normal person blessing Abram, as God said. He would bless those who bless you. But I would say that it's much more likely that this is God, in the form of a man, blessing Abram. Why? Because the text tells us that he is a king and a priest, whose name means king of righteousness, who comes out and blesses Abram. And to add unto that, when we go back and read Hebrews 7, specifically starting in verse 3. And I will remember and just re remind you that the Holy Spirit knew what was going to be said in Hebrews 7 when he introduced Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Hebrews 7, chapter 3, or chapter 7, verse 3 says, He was without father. Who else is without father? He is without mother. Who else is that true of? He's without genealogy. Who else is that true of? He has neither beginning nor end. Who else is that true of? The only answer to those questions is God himself. That's the only answer. So the story of Melchizedek, and I'll try and wrap this up here. If somebody wants to go get the kids, we can. 
if they're the younger kids. You got it, Cohen. Thank you, sir. The story of Melchizedek, along with other Christophanies, types of Messiah, it's used by the Spirit, by the Ruach, to weave for us the story of the Son, Yeshua, throughout the Tanakh. This is helping point us toward Yeshua. And we should celebrate that. We should celebrate that even in the earliest chapters of the Bible, of Scripture, we're given this really vital direction towards God's redemptive plan. This is all done before Yeshua takes center stage, before that big finale, coming onto the scene in the virgin birth, and his subsequent life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And so we think about that, but we also we have to remember what, what was the point here in this story in, in Genesis chapter 14. As stated early on, aside from the beauty of the mystery of Melchizedek pointing to Yeshua, we remember that he's the setup for Messiah's superior priesthood also. He's the setup for Yeshua's superior priesthood, superior over the Levitical priesthood, because it was before the Levitical priesthood. It, it, it happened pre-Levitical priesthood, and that's the main point of Hebrews chapter 7, which is the culmination of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, that it's preparing, again, especially those who lived during that time pre-destruction of the temple, pre-70 A.D., before Rome came and sacked the temple and destroyed Jerusalem, saying, it's okay that the Levitical priesthood is going to end. Yeshua is the superior priesthood, and it's okay. So, as I wrap up this morning, I want, I want us to focus on why, why Abram needed Melchizedek then and why, more importantly, why we need Yeshua now. And again, this answer lies in Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, the answer to the question why. If you look at verse 11, verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 7 says, now, asking a question, if, the, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for based on it the people had been given the Torah, what further need was there for a different Cohen to arise, designated according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? It asks a question, and the answer to that question again goes all the way back to that first rebellious sin. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. The consequence for that sin and every other sin is what? It's death. The consequence for that sin and every other sin is death. Everyone sins and everyone dies. Even the Levitical priests of Israel were sinners, and every one of them eventually died. Every single one of them did. Eventually died. They would live their lives as priests, they would complete the sacrifices on behalf of the people and of themselves, and at the end of their life they would die. And another priest would take over their duty, and it would happen Repeatedly. That was the cycle of Levitical priesthood. There was no satisfaction found in the priest except for the fact that every action they were required to perform pointed to, which, to that which would result in the ultimate satisfaction. So the question then is, who could fulfill this priesthood? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is asking. Who could be the undying priest? The one who was not going to die? They themselves could only point to the sacrifice. 
The priests could only point to the sacrifice. And both them and Melchizedek are pointing this to Yeshua. The Levitical priests and Melchizedek are pointing this to Yeshua. And that's important because Yeshua, we know, he's the only undying priest. He's the one who gave himself as a sacrifice and then defeated the power of sin and death, overcoming the grave, right? Amen? Hallelujah? That's, that's awesome. He took our sin. He suffered the wrath of our righteous father. And then he rose in victory. And now he's exalted on high forever. And that is the story. That's the message that should give us both warning and hope, okay? The hope is, of course, that Yeshua has risen high and above all else. The warning for us, again, comes in some of these side stories that were associated with this coming of Melchizedek, right? These warnings against making oneself rich at another's expense, either intentionally or unintentionally. Warnings of rebelling against God, using using forms of, uh, you know, trying to maintain power through political means rather than true spiritual power, those stubborn forms of rebellion or those overt, in-your-face forms of rebellion. But I've also shared with you again this message of hope, right? This hope that we have in God, that we have in Yeshua. He revealed to himself, revealed us to himself, revealed us to himself through Melchizedek, right? And he pointed us to the real priest, the real king, that is Yeshua. And that is the hope that we must carry on. We must share that hope with others in this season. There's a lot of people in this season who are putting their hope in gifts under the Christmas tree right now, okay? Like, that, the right gift is going to make me happy, right? That's, finally, I'm going to get what makes me happy. And I'll tell you that those people have no true hope. There's so many people around us who have no hope because they have never had an encounter with a Melchizedek in their life, or more importantly, Yeshua in their life. But maybe they just need to have an encounter with you. They don't need you to reign on their Christmas parade, okay? They just need you to rain hope on them. They need you to rain hope that lives within you. The Apostle Peter, he reminded us that we are always to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason that the hope is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 And you can, you can give an answer because you have the Spirit in you. You have the Ruach in you. And again, Peter reminds us, and he says, the Spirit of God is in you. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.